We the Future Conversations is providing this podcast for educational purposes only. We the Future is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit. It neither takes any position on any political issue nor endorses any candidates, political parties, or public policy proposals. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Veed the Future. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Read the Future employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of Read the Future or any of its officials. Welcome to With the Future Conversation. My name is Derek Tengap, and today we have our guest speaker, Roy Miller. Roy, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, Derek. I'm uh, originally from Minnesota, came to Arizona via the U.S. Air Force Academy and flew airplanes at Williams Air Force Base for five years and then went into the Air Force Reserve for 25 years. That's one of my key interests is uh, military affairs and insurance. Business ethics is another area of concern that I developed during that time. And in my part-time activities, I'm a defender of liberty, always looking for people and organizations who want to defend the cause of liberty. It sounds like you have all hands on deck here when it comes to being engaged with the community. You said you were a defender of liberty. What does that really mean? Well, fundamentally, I believe that government has only one legitimate purpose, and that is protecting liberty. Everything else we can do cooperatively and competitively. And government, like George Washington, warned us, if it's limited, it performs a useful function. But if it gets out of hand, it can do a lot of damage. <clears throat> and so my cause has been to try to keep it limited, low or no taxes, very minimal regulations at the national level. Protecting liberty essentially means national defense. At the local level, <clears throat> protecting liberty essentially means police and courts. And again, the rest of it we can do on our own through cooperation and competition. What about education? Like how does protection liberty fall into education? Um, and what got you into um, really uh, defending li- li- liberty, as you said? Um, what sort of novels really sort of inspired you? Well, the novels that inspired me initially were the Ayn Rand novels, the Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead, primarily We the Living. <clears throat> But uh, that caused me to get into other novels from Friedrich Hayek or or, uh, books from Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, Milton Friedman, and many others who advocate uh, for liberty. And as far as education, I think education should be totally devoid of government involvement should be done cooperatively and competitively and it would be much more efficient and much cheaper if that were the case 
at both the local and the higher education levels. But obviously we have government involved at all levels. So my goal would be to reduce that as much as possible. Let's change topics a little bit. Let's try to go into your civilian life. You said civilian life. Does that mean your professional career track? Well, essentially, the reserve where I spent 25 years, Air Force Reserve, is a part-time job. So my full-time job was in finance, and that involved the shopping center management and sales, insurance sales, and uh, banking. Most of my career I spent at Wells Fargo and retired from there. Originally, it was called First Interstate, and then even before that, for a short time, First National Bank. But <clears throat> I also did uh, some other professional work as on a consulting basis in fundraising and uh, managing trusts for organizations that were putting uh, real estate projects together. So I've had a pretty diverse uh, civilian career, but all focused around uh, in terms of Arizona, like what is your take in terms of like issues that um, still exist today? Well, the issues really have been pretty consistent. Education is the biggest portion of the government budget, so it's very important. Always has been ever since the government got involved in education almost two hundred years ago. Uh, transportation is also a big expenditure. Uh, issues like land and water are huge issues, not so much from an expenditure standpoint, but from a resource control standpoint. And as far again, as I mentioned regarding education and uh, medical, another big one, I really think these can be handled uh, privately, cooperatively, and competitively and should not Government should not be involved. Uh, land use, I, I don't think the government should own real estate. They can own personal property, but they should lease real estate. And the main reason for that is that when government owns it, it's mostly unproductive. And beyond that, you don't get uh, any resources from it, and you don't really know how much it's worth. It's only if you rent the land on a free market basis, that you know how much it's worth. So the government should rent uh, the land. As far as water, uh, we have much too much government involvement in that. We should be treating it like other natural resources like copper and iron. And <clears throat> it should be allocated based on a free market rather than government edict. We do have a concern in that regard here in Arizona. But I think the best way to handle it is not through more government edicts, but through making sure that the resources allocated on the free market get lots of friends by doling out big chunks of government money. So you're essentially buying votes that way, and uh, it becomes attractive to those feeding at the trough. I mean, uh, I, that. That does sort of make sense to me a lot because as I'm growing up in a um, society that is heavily transforming or transitioning um, modes of transport, 
we have uh, electric vehicles coming, we have um, more alternative vehicles, also modes of transportation, then what is really your analysis or like your idea as to how um, businesses can really um, innovate as well as guide government to really administer uh, the future of transportation or education? For almost 40 years, and another one was called the Arizona Spectator, which was a research organization that ran for about from a free market. Shortly after that, we started the Goldwater Institute with a similar objective. The problem with the Arizona Spectator was we tried to do it on a volunteer basis, and we found that was really impractical. So when we started the Goldwater Institute, we, we had staff and it has grown remarkably over the years and has done an outstanding job. And again, its primary purpose is limited government and economic liberty, individual responsibility, some of the same goals that other free market organizations have. I've also had a free market discussion group that meets for dinner once a month. and. <clears throat> there we also discuss economic issues we've been meeting for 39 years. These are all organizations with a similar goal, which is education and reduction of the heavy hand of government. In terms of rural communities that um, are heavily left behind in um, investments, how, how, how can private sector um, involvement in education um, um, close that gap in rural education? Well, I don't really agree that communities get quote, left behind because in a free market, resources will be allocated to their highest and best use. And you, when you bring in government, you wind up with things like the bridge to nowhere. Uh, expenditures are made on a political basis without sufficient regard to economics. So the way that manifests itself in transportation is <clears throat> a penchant for big projects like rail, passenger rail, which is extremely wasteful, extremely inefficient, and for the most part would not exist except for government. But there's a desire from some for control. I think you find that to be the overriding issue in almost all government programs. It's an attempt to control people. Uh, the people who want to control are those who don't believe in the beneficial effects of free markets and liberty. So it would make more sense, for example, to use buses, taxis, rather than light rail, but light rail has the political advantage that it's a huge expenditure and you get lots of friends by doling out big chunks of government money. So you're essentially buying votes that way and uh, it becomes attractive to those feeding at the trough. I mean, uh, I, that... That does sort of make sense to me a lot because as I'm growing up in a um, society that is heavily transforming or transitioning um, modes of transport, 
we have um, electric vehicles coming, we have um, more alternative vehicles, also modes of transportation, then what is really your analysis or like your idea as to how um, businesses can really um, innovate as well as guide government to really administer uh, the future of transportation or education? Um, I mean, for education, um, 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 students have to be transported from home to school. What sort of avenue can be um, um, perspective? Well, a good way to look at that from the 30,000 foot view is to go back to 1946 and the foundation of the first free market think tank, which was done by Leonard Reed. At that time, Leonard Reed was the president of the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce. And businessmen tend to be free market oriented. That's mostly the way they make their money. But what Leonard Reed found is that when government projects come along that are going to spend potentially an awful lot of money, businesses sometimes tend to lose their commitment to free markets and support these big projects. So he believed that education in the principles of free markets and liberty was necessary. And he started the Foundation for Economic Education. That then spawned over the years many other free market think tanks like the Cato Institute, the Reason Foundation, the Manhattan Institute, Mountain States Legal Foundation, the Independent Institute, and many, many others. That, the Reason Foundation, yes, and that then in turn over the years spawned local think tanks that were focused on state issues. Goldwater Institute would be an example of that. Almost every state now has at least one free market think tank. The bigger states like California have more than one. But all of these organizations are devoted to the same general interest, which is promoting markets uh, free markets and free minds, as the so nation advocates. And it's clear to anyone who studies economics carefully that people acting cooperatively and competitively will always produce a better result than coercion. And if you think about it, that's all that government is, is coercion, because it only does three things. It stops you from what you want to do, forces you to do something you don't want to do, and steals your money. <laughs> there isn't any other function <laughs> that government does. So again, it's necessary, but it should be limited because coercion is not the best way to attain goals. Cooperation and competition is. That is a very good um I mean, I take on as to really how today's problem or today's innovation can really be um, like sort of remodeled in a free market um, driven way. But you also have the argument that uh, capitalism is really destroying the planet and how, and so like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of conscious capitalism, but is that the next level for free market um, and how can a free market driven 
um, solution be applied to children. But you also have the argument that uh, capitalism is really destroying the planet and how, and so like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of conscious capitalism, but is that the next level for framework um, solution to be considered of, yes, um, some of these solutions do have effects or should it really be where free market, uh, what's, what's your story with charter schools and, and how can a free market driven um, solution be applied to, um, to, to this education crisis? Well, to back up just a second, it doesn't really matter whether it's big corporations or individuals. To today's education crisis. Well, to back up just a second, it doesn't really matter whether it's big corporations or individuals. People can do damage to the environment and do damage to each other. And that is the proper role of government to address that, whether it's by corporations or by individuals. The notion of capitalism really is just freedom applied to corporations. And its effects are, my opinion, in my opinion, much more beneficial than government regulation. The problem that is most often uh, suggested with regard to corporations is not protecting the environment. But what you, if you really look at it closely, what that usually results from is the failure of government to protect property rights. If we were properly protecting property rights, whether it's surface rights or minerals or water, there would be an incentive to preserve them. Instead, what we often do is confiscate lands, bring in big government, a lot of rules and regulations, and abridge property rights. Of course, in the name of protection, but again, a much better approach would be respecting property rights and protecting them. As far as education, uh, that should be done privately. Uh, it was in this country up until the early 1800s. And the continued growth of government and education has resulted in extremely high expenses and and quite a bit of waste. So you see that in lots of ways. You see that in the fact that charter schools or, or private schools and uh, religious schools are much more efficient, much cheaper. And <clears throat> charter schools have come along as a possible alternative to give parents choice. The whole charter school movement has been very critical to me, both from its initiation in the Goldwater Institute time, serving on the charter school board, and now actually uh, being on the board of a charter school myself. So education is very important. It's disturbing to me that it's been so heavily regulated. I think that, uh, first of all, at the federal level, as you probably know, there is no mention at all of education. 
in spite of that, we have a Department of Education that's a cabinet level. We have huge amounts of funding and regulation from the federal level. Uh, various conservatives, Ronald Reagan being the most prominent, tried to reduce that role unsuccessfully. But the result of government regulation in an area such as education that needs little or no regulation, that is to say, it can and should be run cooperatively and competitively. For example, like the grocery store business. Fortunately, so far, we don't, even though people need food, we don't let the government own food stores and run food stores. We shouldn't be letting the government own and run schools, in my opinion, uh, where we need to help with government money. It should be done in the form of funding for the student, not for the school. Incidentally, as an aside, the same thing is true for the whole medical industry. There's no mention of that in the Constitution either. The federal government should have no role in that. And it would be my preference, of course, that even the local government have little or no involvement in either medicine or education, both extremely important roles, no more important than eating and nourishment, which so far has avoided government regulation head in the same direction with the other two. I mean, like that is quite an impressive overview of of education in Arizona um, over the years. Um, Chronologically speaking, um, like in the early early years, I mean, um, what were some issues that um, you kind of, I think, observed um, in terms of the early um, enforcement as well as the the due diligence with Arizona charter schools? The group of us that founded the Goldwater Institute were primarily interested in having a local think tank. The whole think tank movement started back in 1946 with Leonard Reed in the Foundation for Economic Education. So Leonard realized that there was a need for education, educating people about the benefits of freedom and the ability of people to work competitively and cooperatively without the heavy hand of government. And he started the Foundation for Economic Education. Now there are, I don't know how many national organizations, at least 100 of them across the nation. And then that in turn spawned the formation of state level think tanks, which the Goldwater Institute was one. And our intention in forming that was to try to address issues of taxation and regulation. Uh, Some of the big issues in Arizona were regulation of lands. As you probably know, we have an awful lot of federal land in Arizona and a lot of state-owned land. And so the uh, regulation of that was a very important issue. We have a lot of issues with water also. And of course, the education system. So our formation of the Goldwater Institute was an intention to regulate or to address the regulation in those various areas. And I think the the, uh, whole charter school movement is the best example of that. Uh, Others had to do with another big expenditure area, for example, transportation. 
most of us who were founders believe that uh, passenger rail transportation is highly inefficient, way too expensive, and that it's not an appropriate area for huge government expenditures. So we've been involved in that area. I guess I would have to confess unsuccessfully <laughs> because it seems to continue to grow. The, the most prominent example is the light rail here in Arizona and in other states, a hugely inefficient way of transportation. But frankly, it goes back to this issue of power and control. And the uh, left politically tends to like more control and uh, having decentralized big systems of transportation are a way to do that, just like centralized control of education is a big way to do that and centralized control of the uh, area of medicine not to be redundant but that's another area that we got into then later on i we realized that uh, simply holding seminars and writing papers was not sufficient and we realized that use of the court system is also a way to address liberty. <laughs> to shorten the uh, characterization of it, it's basically suing government <laughs> because it's the government that's abridging these liberties. So we started suing government about 20 years ago, and that has been extremely successful, and that has allowed the Goldwater Institute to have influence all over the nation one of the big examples of that is the right to choose, which has to do with the medical area, basically allowing people with terminal injuries to experiment with medicines that are not approved yet by the government. And that has, that has taken off nationally. And there's other examples of that. So I think the whole area of litigation, which, by the way, was started and run by Clint Bullock for several years, who has gone on, as many viewers would know, to a Supreme Court appointment in Arizona. He's been extremely influential uh, in uh, litigation, first at the Arizona. Well, before that, even, uh, he was involved in another nationwide think tank called the Institute for Justice. Which which is very influential in similar ways to the Goldwater Institute. But that uh, organization, Goldwater Institute, has um, spawned others like the Arizonans for Prosperity, uh, Arizona Free Enterprise Club. Um, I would say to some extent Center for Arizona Policy, other free market organizations. I mean, this is incredible, first of all. I mean, I, I am learning so much from you just because I, first of all, one, don't really have the hands and experience, but also I'm really new to the state in general. So you are really lecturing me on things that I have to um, 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 get more knowledge on. But to focus more on you, I want to also like direct the conversation as to workforce development. Um, if you look at today, they um. The Greater Phoenix Chamber is really um, working very hard in terms of of, of um, 
getting workforce development to be one of Arizona's strong points. How, from your experience um, um, from the Goldwater Institute to um, really going from business to now civics um, activism, like how, how do you think workforce development can become um, an education priority or rather than it becoming more of a leave it up to the businesses to educate their workers? Should it be a um, public school priority or should it be more of a um, partnership level um, priority? And do universities have a role in that? Well, why, why does the lack of civic present, present a problem in our country? Mm -hmm. When uh, I was working in the finance industry, I did get involved quite a bit with the Phoenix Chamber. I was served on the Military Affairs Committee because of my military background and the, the uh, Political Action Committee. And the Phoenix Chamber <clears throat> was very helpful in, in both of those areas. First of all, promoting support for the military, which is the main function of the U.S. government and then uh, promoting candidates for local office who favored uh, limited regulation on business and lower taxes. As far, and, and of course, they were involved too in promoting workforce development. But in my own opinion, government really should have very little, I would say none, but very little to do with that. It should be done by the local organizations like the chamber, and like uh, non nonprofit organizations, and of course, primarily like existing businesses. I should mention that in this more general area of promoting the ideas of free markets, you and I are both uh, uh, students of ASU, and those ideas have come in the last uh, five or 10 years quite a bit to ASU in the form of the Center for the Study of Economic Liberty in the Business School and the Center for Political Thought and Leadership in the Liberal Arts College. And then more recently, the umbrella organization that was created, the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership. Obviously, in, in the business area that I grew up in, the uh, principles of running a business are very important, and those are also worthy of education. This is where we should be spending our time, and if we were free of the yoke of unreasonable restraint from government, we would have more time to do that. Got to unmute yourself, Derek. <laughs> That happens a lot. I mean, it's Zoom calls, right? <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, like that, that, that really is accurate from the principles of management, um, really running a business, but also the leisure time where you are advocating and promoting the better good of society um, should, should really be one of those pillars in everybody's lives that, um, not everybody, but not necessarily those who are interested in in really seeing um, um, their community, their state, as well as their, their country achieve, you know, like, um, and compete in the global stage. Um, now, to a few questions where I'm really trying to get to know um, an alternative, Laurie. Um, who, who, what sort of 
perspective do you think would best rebuttal your argument from free market or to um, libertarianism? Well, there are people in unfortunate situations. So absent a good education, if you see one person with limited assets and another person with more, there's a tendency to say, well, we'll just take some from the people, person with more and give it to the person with less. But that has that notion has terrible ramifications, but that's essentially what government does. What we should be doing is promoting the voluntary exchange of assets so that we all can flourish and nobody has to be sort of punished by removing their assets from them to give to someone else. Again, freedom is the answer. What's the question? (laughs) By the way, there's a, there's a, there's a real good way of looking at this that I've come across in the last uh, year or two. A friend of mine is promoting the idea of live and let live. And if you think about it, that's pretty fundamental. Um, What is live? What is live and let live? What does that mean? Well, it's the notion that we all ought to be able to live as we choose. And we all ought to let others live as they choose. Again, assuring that we respect those same rights in each other. Well, I mean, education is important for any activity in life, but for the subjects that we are talking about, it requires an additional deeper dive into subjects like economics, because it's easy to come to the intuitive notion that if you think this one person needs something and somebody else has something, well, let's just take the thing from the person that has it and give it, give some of it to the people that don't. And that's the simple solution. But that has terrible consequences because it requires a high degree of authoritarianism. And we've seen the terrible consequences of that throughout history from people like Mao and Stalin and the the great dictators of the world. So understanding and civic involvement is what we need to make this idea work, this idea of liberty that our founding fathers uh, promoted. I won't say they came up with it because these ideas go clear back to the millennia. Well, quickly, I would say, just as an explanation of that, that I like to give to uh, younger people is it's not enough to just understand the concepts of liberty. That's important in education. So I call that that the head. But you also have to have the heart. You have to care whether people are free. You might be a professor who understands the value of free market economics, but just not have an interest in promoting it. But even even those two, even the understanding and even having the passion for it is not enough. You have to have the gut. That is, you have to be willing to fight. And that's why the concepts of liberty, in my opinion, are so difficult to promote, because it's hard to find people with all three who have the understanding of the concepts of liberty, plus the passion to make people free. 
plus the willingness to, to fight, to spend time. And that's, again, why uh, people who say that, uh, as Thomas Jefferson did, oh my gosh, what's now the quote I'm looking for? <laughs> can't remember that famous Thomas Jefferson <laughs> quote. I, 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 I literally like point you down as like a Thomas Jeffersonian type of guy. <laughs> that was, well, that was like, yeah, so like, I mean, like everything you have said was just borrowed down to a Jeffersonian um, individual. And, and you really have a remarkably impressive knowledge as to really what is it that you have, you have, you have done and what is it that you're, you're doing. And we have covered our three topics, I mean, um, history, present, and the future, but now to focus on, on the future of, of really what your opinions are in terms of Arizona, but but what is also your perspective on world Arizona? Well, I, I would like to start with the big picture first. I think that transportation is another area that doesn't need government. Beyond that, uh, free market concepts could save us a lot of money and allow for a better transportation system, such as treating roads as earning assets. So instead of allowing politics to build a road from A to B when there's very little transportation from A to B, you would let private enterprise do that, pull the road. And I think in that case, you would have very good transportation between Phoenix and Payson and Phoenix and Flagstaff and Phoenix and Tucson. Now, you might not have such good transportation between. Phoenix and Oatman, or between Phoenix and the Wallapai Indian Reservation. <laughs> but those systems of transportation then would take on other forms. And I think that the result would be a much more efficient transportation system overall. There's, there's this notion that Things that are needed wouldn't get done if they weren't done by government. But that's nonsense because government has no resources that it doesn't take from the people through taxation. And the people spending those assets on their own, acting competitively and cooperatively, I believe, result in a better, would, it, would result in a better transportation system. Oh, wow. That is a really good, um, like, I think picture as to how transportation with supply chain makes into that as fortune. If we put turnpikes, I mean, as um, autonomous vehicles come into play, I mean, we're gonna have to really um, rethink the whole concept of um, transportation from, not from the ground up, but to see how it can really turn into an asset um, rather than a life. Um, so- Sure, a good comparison, for example, is that we all know People need nutrition, but we don't let the government build so far, build food stores. We give people subsidies to buy their own food. Well, we could do the same thing with medicine. We could fund the person to buy their own medical services. We could do the same thing, as I mentioned, with education. We can fund the student, let them purchase their parents, purchase their own education. And get back to this topic, we do the same thing with transportation. 
instead of building these billion, multi-billion dollar trains, I mean, for the same amount of money, you could give transportation vouchers for people to use Uber or Lyft or buses and have a much more efficient situation. That is that is quite the perspective, I would say that. I mean, um, as I was also saying, um, like there's a lot of new innovations coming out in terms of um, autonomous vehicles and how that would all be sorted out. And with more cars coming on the road, transportation can really be one of the topics that um, solutions need to be mented out. Um, going forward now, it, it's it's a really matter of like seeing um, closing statements here, Roy. Um, like how, I mean, are you afraid the future doesn't look bright or what's what's really your future outlook here? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question. Here's the way I answer that one. <clears throat> I uh, <laughs> mentioned all my work for less taxes, smaller government and so forth. It looks like I'm failing <laughs> at that project. But the way I would look at it is things are still getting worse, but they're getting worse at a slower pace. Okay. <laughs> so. So from that, I gained some optimism. <laughs> and, you know, I do believe that it doesn't take a majority to do anything. It takes an influential minority. So one person, two people, three people can make a difference. And I think it's real easy to get discouraged. But when you think about it that way, I mean, look at, you know, the big names of the past, Gandhi or Jesus Christ or, or uh, Mohammed or whoever, these individuals were hugely influential. And when you combine that with some groups like people like uh, Thoreau and Emerson would advocate small influential groups or Edmund Burke, uh, I think you can regain or gain optimism and uh, Keep yourself working toward those goals. And I think, finally, even if you are not an optimist, that is, even if you don't think you're going to be successful, you should still do the right thing. I mean, we were, we were all taught by our parents to do the right thing. It might not benefit you, but you should still do the right thing. And I think, you know, thinkers as far back as Marcus Aurelius told us that just do the right thing to really focus on the military side of things like with your uh, military um uh um career track like what would you do in the ukraine or, or what's your narrative or what's your perspective with the ukraine situation well again the purpose of the military is defending our liberty it's defending the united states so i would be less inclined to be the world's policeman than some in my party are. <laughs> and as far as Ukraine, we need to think about the strategic interest of the United States. Um, fundamentally, how important is it that Ukraine not be dominated by the United States? Uh, I don't know that that is important to our uh, strategic interests. So we certainly ought to be, ought not, in my opinion, having our sons and daughters dying to make sure that Ukraine is not run by Russia, but uh, by Ukrainians. Obviously, it was run by Russia for a long time. 
and they appear to want to re-exert their influence. But uh, one example, in my opinion, would be to agree to oppose Ukraine's entrance into NATO. Um, I think that would that seems to be something nobody wants to bargain with, but um, that might be something that would satisfy the Russians and I think would not harm our strategic interests. I don't like the idea of putting a lot of arms and people in the surrounding area around Ukraine because those are triggers. And especially with the growth of nuclear weapons, whether it's North Korea or Pakistan or China or Russia or India, um, it's, it's a dangerous world. And even if not intentionally, mistakes can be made. So we don't, we shouldn't be setting up these tripwires. For example, I think we have too many bases around the world. Um, every one of those can be one of those tripwires and uh, certainly can provide an irritant for someone to lash back. It's the term is usually called blowback. So I would be uh, basically a non interventionist. I think that's different from being isolationist. I'm not an isolationist. I think we definitely ought to trade. We ought to trade with everybody, by the way, including, including Cuba. You know, having that. Oh, why? Why did you mention Cuba? I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate for um, economic revenue via trade. Um, but why did you mention Cuba? Why? Why specifically Cuba? Well, partly because it's 90 miles off our coast, which is much more important to us. Plus, trading with Cuba, I think, would lower the tensions. I believe the phrase that. If goods don't cross borders, troops will. So we should be allowing free trade. We should be allowing individuals to trade with anybody. There may be reasons why governments don't uh, trade with some countries that are hostile to us, but I think individuals in this country, corporations in this country, should be free to trade all around the world. By the way, we ought to abolish tariffs. I think they should all be taken down. They, they uh, um, provoke people and they harm the U.S. interests, people, as much as they do the target that the tariff is intending to hurt. So, again, I think that Freedom is the answer to most questions. I have a friend who's fond of saying, freedom is the answer. What's the question? Well, anybody's welcome to contact me by email. It's rmiller451 at aol.com or by phone, uh, 602-254-4648. I think that as far as what we all should do, it varies by individual we all should do something. We can't do everything, but we can do something, whether it's speaking to your friends and family about these principles, whether it's writing letters to the editor, whether it's writing books, whether it's 
forming podcasts like you're doing here, like the two of us are doing, we should put these ideas forward and continue to advocate for them and use our own time and talents as each of us individually can. Just one more question before we go. Um, What if you never learned to read? How do you think your life would have been different, better, or worse? Well, again, uh, we all have different capacities. We, We are all familiar with those who had very limited education, but nevertheless did extremely well. On the other hand, there's also quite a few people out there that have an awful lot of education letters behind their name that don't seem to accomplish anything. So I think, as I told my three daughters when they were growing up, showing up is more important than your number of letters behind your name or anything else. Most of life is showing up. So it's, again, doing something. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And that's what you should do. Well, it's a wrap, Gary. Thank you for coming on with the future conversations. Um, thank you so much for your comments and your perspective. And I do look forward to working with you uh, in the future. Welcome. Good luck. <laughs> Read the Future Conversations is providing this podcast for educational purposes only. Read the Future is a nonpartisan, not for profit. It neither takes any position on any political issue nor endorses any candidates, political parties, or public policy proposals. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Veed the Future. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Veed the Future employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of Veed the Future or any of its officials.